Let's open our Bibles this morning to Acts 16 before we turn to Philippians chapter 1. Acts chapter 16, and let us just very briefly look at this chapter where we have the history of the founding of the church at Philippi of Macedonia of Greece. Named by Philip of Macedonia, the father of Alexander the Great, a chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony of the Romans, we find the Apostle Paul in what would today be called Turkey, across the sea in a strait from Macedonia. And we read about the Holy Spirit's leading of him. He has picked up a young man named Timothy in Lystra, who's of good report. The young man's mother was a Jewess who was a believer in Jesus Christ. His father was a Greek. He hadn't been circumcised. Paul circumcises him just to give him a better audience with the Jews in those parts. And so we come down and we read in verse 6 of how the Lord lead, led a man like Paul and leads his ministers. Verse 6, now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. After they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Now, if you look at a map, you find Paul in the middle of Turkey. He tries to go south. He's coming from the east. He tries to go south, and the Lord forbids him. He tries to go north into Bithynia, and the Lord forbids him. And if he's coming from the east, there's only one direction left, west. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. In verse 10, you can figure out where Luke was. Luke wrote the book of Acts. We know that from the first couple of words. When he says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. I wrote a gospel to you, O Theophilus. Now I'm writing you the Acts of the Apostles. But see, in in verse 8, it was they we're forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach. In verse 10, it's we, assuredly gathered that the Lord had called us. Luke, is, Luke was at Troas, met up with Paul. They have Timothy to their company, and they go into Macedonia, and they pass through a couple of cities and come to the city of Philippi, where they wait a few days until the Sabbath day, and by that time they have figured out where some women gather, on the Sabbath day by a riverside to make prayer. These are devout women that are praying to God, and Paul goes out there and sits with them and teaches them about the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord opened the heart of Lydia, so you know she's one of the members there, opened the heart of Lydia, that she attended to what Paul was saying, and she believed. And she was such, she was a great woman, she was a successful businesswoman, and she was a great Christian, And she asked Paul and Luke and Timothy to stay at her house. And at the end of the chapter, after Paul is released from prison, Silas is with them as well. They go back to the house of Lydia, 
and greet the brethren, comfort them, and, and leave the city of Philippi. Now in this, after Lydia was baptized in verse 15, we find that a certain damsel with a devil in that city that brought her masters much gain by soothsaying or trying to tell the future. Getting it right once in a while, just enough to keep the people deceived. Because a false prophet can never do it all the time. I don't care whether it was this damsel, or whether it was Balaam, or whether it was Gene Dixon of our own nation. God doesn't let them do it all the time. And the only things they can tell about the future are what God lets the devil discover and find out. Because without God showing it to him, he's just a created being dependent on Almighty God himself for any knowledge. But this, this damsel kept crying out in the streets of Philippi, These men are the servants of the Most High God. Was she right? She was right. Which show unto us the way of salvation. Was she right? Yes, she was. They knew Paul. Didn't the devils tell us that in another place? We know Jesus and we know Paul, but who are you? So the devils knew that Jesus was the Holy One of God and they knew that Paul was his apostle. Well, Paul didn't like that bother and nuisance in the streets, so he cast the devil out of her and he came right out. Didn't take a long time and they didn't have to have a rock band play for for an hour or so to get them all in the mood. He just commanded that devil to come out, and the devil came out. But then her owners, you know, realized that their, their, their money game was over. So they had Paul and Silas hauled before the magistrates, and the rulers rose up against them, stripped off their clothes, beat them, and put them in an inner prison, and ordered the jailer to keep them safe. And you know the rest of that story. God opened that prison. God sent an earthquake, and God can send an earthquake to do exactly what he wants the earthquake to do. If you think that an earthquake is a chaotic movement of the earth's surface, you're forgetting there's a God in charge of the earthquake. He used that earthquake to open the prison doors. Now listen, you couldn't have opened them if you were a man there, and you didn't have the right key. But he opened the prison doors, and everyone's shackles and stocks fell off. Now that's using an earthquake. Can God control every single movement of this universe? Yes. And that man came in and was ready to kill himself because he knew that in the Roman way of employment, in the Roman way of employment, if you let a prisoner go, you lost your life. They had few escapes in those days. So he was ready to kill himself because he knew the Romans were going to kill him for having let those prisoners go. But Paul said, we're all here. These are some marvelous things, brethren. Uh, Prisoners tend to want to leave when the doors are opened and the shackles and chains are off. But they stayed. And this man, who knew what crime they were guilty of, which show unto us the way of salvation, that Paul and Silas were of strange character, singing in the middle of the night and praying and praising God, and that they were still there and hadn't run away, and that God had done something marvelous in his own jail, came in and fell down before them and said, what must I do to be saved? He's on his knees before the apostle. Is the Lord able to do great and marvelous things? Listen, he wasn't asking, how do I get born again either? He wasn't asking how to be born again. He was asking how to have that way of salvation, both in a sense of conversion and knowledge, peace, assurance, that Paul had contrary to the Roman way of thinking, 
and to know that eternal life was his because he'd been saved by death like Paul and Silas, by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul answered, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And if a man believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, he shall be saved in two ways. He'll be saved from ignorance and the folly of this world, and he shall be saved in the great day of judgment. Because belief now is evidence of what will happen then. But believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is not how you get born again. Paul did not have an unregenerate sinner on his knees, at his feet, asking how to be born again. God had already changed. Romans weren't used to bowing and kneeling before prisoners. Especially when he had the sword. But he was down there because God had humbled him and had humbled his whole house. Because Paul's answer was, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And he went home and that whole house was converted, were baptized that night. Now you know, now you know some of the members of the Church of Philippi, don't you? A jailer and his whole, Mr. Jailer and Mrs. Jailer and their children, because it says their whole household was baptized and were part of that church in Philippi, and so was Lydia, a seller of purple and a successful one at that from the city of Thyatira. Now in the morning, someone changed the magistrate's mind. Maybe they didn't like the looks of their jail. No chains worked anymore and the doors were wide open. But whatever the reason was, God had changed the magistrates, so they sent sergeants and said, let these men go. Now, the Apostle Paul's a wise man. The Apostle Paul said, wait a minute. You're just going to come and give me this little private message that we're supposed to leave the city of Philippi? I'm a Roman citizen. You have shamed me in the streets of your city publicly by stripping me naked and beating me uncondemned. Let them come and ask me to leave. Now, why did Paul need to do that? And was there any wisdom in it? Can we figure out any wisdom in it? Paul just made an effort there to protect that budding little church in Philippi that they were not all strangers, but some of them were Roman citizens, and it got them some extra care and protection. Now, it didn't last long because we're going to read about the trouble the Philippians went through. But the Apostle Paul let them all know that he was a Roman citizen and that when he was back in town, and he did come back to this town in Acts chapter 20, when he came back, they all knew he was Roman. But I I hope you can enjoy all of chapter 16. The Apostle Paul didn't let them come and give him a little private message. Why don't you leave town? He said, no, you come and beg me yourselves. Because I'm a Roman and you've beaten me naked in the streets. If he would have reported that, they would have been in serious trouble. And so they came and begged him to leave. And he didn't leave right away. He decided he'd go and spend a little time with Lydia and have lunch with them, comfort the brethren, and then he left town. And that's Acts 16. And we have the founding of the church at Philippi. And I'd like you to remember, and, and I have to answer this almost every week of my life, If the Great Commission was fulfilled by the apostles, then what are we supposed to be doing? You know, the idea today in American churches is the number one reason for you to be alive is the soul-saving business. When Paul went to the city of Philippi, he didn't go to the brothels looking for women. He didn't go to the orphanages looking for single mothers and children without parents. Where did he go? He cast around town until he found out where people went to pray to God. 
and he went to where people were praying. He didn't go to where people were sinning. He never did. Right. He never did. The closest you can get to it's in the city of Athens. In the city of Athens, he went to the marketplace where religious and philosophical matters were discussed. Because he wanted to see if there were any there that would be interested in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to remember that. I, I get tired of having to answer the error that is taught in so many churches that the Great Commission is the mission statement for the local church. The Great Commission was the mission statement for the apostles. When I read all the epistles of the New Testament, there is no repeating of the Great Commission. The only time the Great Commission is mentioned is that it's been fulfilled. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 6. The gospel's been preached in all the world. Colossians 1.23. It's been preached to every creature. When I read the epistles of the New Testament, I see numerous duties that are given there to the saints of God, and it's not saving the lost, and it's not fulfilling the Great Commission. It's being a good spouse, a good parent, a good child, a good citizen, a good neighbor, a good employer, a good employee, and a good church member. Right. And do you know what? You just got a full-time job. Amen. You all are full, full-time servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you do those things the way the Bible tells you to do them, you don't have any time left. And by reading the New Testament, we can see that there isn't any time left. And, and then, of course, to have a holy walk with God and to live a godly life and to pursue walking in the Spirit and bearing the fruits of righteousness and getting along with others in your church, you have a full-time job. I'm thankful that God picked men that were able to go out and fulfill the Great Commission. That is a distraction. And the churches that make it first, you ought to go in and see all the things that I just mentioned because they're never taught those things. Right. Enough on Acts 16. I'm thankful that God prepared just a few men that were able to turn the world upside down in just a few years. Amen. We will go and preach and do the work. I will do the work of an evangelist because of 2 Timothy 4, 5. Whenever I see people wanting to make prayer and don't know the way of God perfectly, we're, we're there. We're there on the Internet. We'll do anything we can for anyone at any time that wants to know the way of God more perfectly. Right. But we're not going to the brothels or the orphanages or the prisons looking for sinners. We want to see someone praying, and then we'll help them. And we're doing that. I got a great letter this week from a young man praying in Tiger River, Bradley Moore. Wanting to know how to pray. You want to see the spiritual letter I got. Wanting to know how to pray better. He's fearful because he's read the Gospels in the last three weeks. And he's found out that Jesus said that vain repetitions are not heard. And Matthew 7, 6 scared him. Because he said, I don't know how to pray. So every day when I pray, my words sound like the previous days. And I'm fearful that I'm breaking Matthew 7, 6. It's not 7, 6. Forget, forgive me, it's, it's, it's 6, 7 maybe. And he wanted to know. You know a young man like that? He's got my attention. Amen. He's got my efforts. He's got my concern. He's got my prayers. He's reading his Bible and he wants to honor God. What a horrible story he comes from. But God is able to reach down and save Roman jailers. And he's able to save this young man. This is a family of five. The father is dead. The three boys are all incarcerated. They've been incarcerated all their lives since they turned 16 years old. It's a horrible story. 
The mother's spaced out on drugs because she's had so many nervous breakdowns. And if you think your life is terrible, I just told you one that's worse than yours. Right. And I wrote him a letter, and I'm trusting God to use it, telling him who in the, who in this, in the Moore family is going to change by humbling themselves before Almighty God and living a life the way they're supposed to. Okay, all of that was to say, we'll go anywhere for someone that's praying. But we don't go looking for sinners and just hand out tracts in the mall. Paul never did it. We're never told to do it. So we don't do it. And people think that we don't care about souls. But I'll compare our efforts at any time to anybody about what we'll do for souls. When we see someone that really wants to serve the Lord. Let's come to Philippians chapter 1. I do know that I've just taken some time. I do know that I have a long chapter. But I also know that it's pretty simple. Philippians is a good Epistle for us. It's short, it's sweet, and it's dealing with one of Paul's favorite churches. It's dealing with a church that was a good church. A righteous church. A faithful church. Maybe the best in the New Testament. What would Paul say to such a good church? Is there anything in there that we could learn if we were to presume that we might be like the church at Philippi? I don't like doing that, but... If you want to think for four weeks that we're a pretty good church in the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ, what would God say to us if we had the Apostle Paul back? That's how we want to look at Philippians. Because there's some things he has to say for a church that doesn't need much in the way of rebuking, just in exhorting. And you know what? There's no church that reaches a situation or a condition that doesn't need more exhorting. Because we can all get better. And Paul wanted them to get better, though he was very thankful for them. I'm not going to dissect every word. I'll help you dissect every word if you want to, but we've got to move through 30 verses. Let's enjoy Philippians chapter 1. You, you've met some of the people. Mr. and Mrs. Jailer and their kids are sitting there in the third row on the left-hand side. Lydia's there in the fifth row on the right-hand side, and she's, she's wearing purple. But... You know some of the people at the church of Philippi. And you know how it was started. And you know Paul was beat publicly there. Okay, you know how he got started. Being whipped in the streets naked. Because you're going to need that. Even in chapter 1. Let's go. Paul and Timotheus. The servants of Jesus Christ. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Which are at Philippi. With the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul and Timotheus, he identifies them as servants of Jesus Christ, which the damsel in the streets of Philippi had already done. She was right and Paul's right. They were servants. And may we all be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. He our master, we his servants, he does the bidding and we do the doing. I wish that we could all be the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was a special one. It says here to all the saints in Christ Jesus, there were sanctified individuals. That means men made holy by the electing purpose of God, the justifying and sanctifying work of Christ, and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit made them saints, and then they had believed the gospel, and had sanctified their lives and purified their hearts by faith, believing the gospel of Paul that he preached. That's what a saint is. A saint is someone that God chose before the world began to be holy. 
that Jesus Christ cleansed at the cross of Calvary and made them holy by washing their sins away. And the Holy Spirit gives them a new heart that is created in righteousness and true holiness. Then they purify their hearts by faith further and they conform their minds not to the world but to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they choose to be saints by walking a sanctified life. Saints. It says bishops and deacons. Plural. We have two explanations. We do not believe in a multiplicity of elders. We don't practice it, and we don't believe it as being necessary. If a church was large enough, they could have as many as they, as the Lord gave them. But it's rather, a, it's, it's rather inefficient to have a whole lot of extra ones in one assembly. How do we understand that verse? Bishops is plural, and deacons is plural. Two things. First of all, we're not told there's only one assembly. There could have been more assemblies. If it was the chief city of that part of Macedonia, there could have been more than just one assembly. Second, which I like better, in the 40 years between 30 A.D. when Jesus rose from the dead and went to heaven and 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was destroyed, in that period of time that the Bible calls the time of Reformation, before they had the New Testament scriptures completed, there were in every church a number of offices. Forget men. Offices. At Corinth, we read about, in the church at Corinth, there was first apostles, then prophets. After that, teachers. Teachers. Now, you have three offices right there, and you're not even given the office of evangelist. You're given apostles, prophets, and teachers, and there's evangelists. Philip was an evangelist. We're told that in the Bible. So there's four teaching offices that are not deacons. There are two offices in the New Testament. Only two. And they are found in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. Bishop and deacon. Bishop and deacon. Elder is not an office. It never has been, and it never will be. Elder is a description of anyone in a position of authority or age. Bishop is a teaching overseer of the church of Jesus Christ. He is to be apt to teach from 1 Timothy chapter 3. A deacon doesn't have to be apt to teach because a deacon doesn't teach. That's not his calling. There's bishops and deacons. Elder is a vague term, meaning anyone in authority. An elder could be an apostle. Peter said he was an elder in 1 Peter chapter 5. Old men are elders. The rulers of the Jews were elders. The court of Pharaoh were elders. Elders, just an old man in a position of, old man or someone in a position of authority. Here we have the two offices given to us in 1 Timothy 3, bishops and deacons. Now, if you have apostles, prophets, evangelists, and teachers, those are four offices. They could have four men, or there could have been two in each of those offices, and they could have had eight bishops, because all of these could have been, in varying degrees, teaching overseers of the church at Philippi, or the churches at Philippi. Because deacons are totally different. They're a serving class of men that are not teachers, and so they're different. The apostle Peter was an elder, was a bishop. Paul was a bishop. Paul taught. Timothy was a bishop. There could have been several at this church. There were four that were traveling together, that were teaching men. We can't spend that much time on each verse, but when we read that and we see multiple bishops, couple explanations, more than one church, 
And there was more than one office. There was several. Because they didn't have a completed New Testament. Once you have a completed New Testament, one man of God, the man of God, can be made perfect and truly furnished unto all good works. He's not truly furnished unto 50% of the good works because he needs another elder to help him. Nowhere is that taught in the New Testament. When Jesus Christ addressed the seven churches of Asia, which is likely the last writing of the New Testament, it's to the angel, the star that's in the right hand of Jesus Christ, the minister, singular, of that church. There was a pastor, singular, at each church. This verse, nor 1 Timothy 3, allows for the vague Presbyterian invention of an elder. You're either a bishop or you're a deacon, and there isn't anything in between. One time we have the word presbytery in the New Testament, and all that means is a group of bishops got together to do the ordaining instead of one. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. We don't know who they were. Timothy was with Paul. Timothy would come to this church later. But Timothy was with Paul when they wrote this, so he wasn't one of them. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, last Sunday I preached to you about grace. And Paul, opening or closing epistles, references the grace of God. Opening and closing. He closes every epistle with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And he opens most, most of them with the same salutation. Grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Because without the grace of God through Jesus Christ, we are hopeless. Amen. And so, when a, when a minister like Paul is addressing his churches, he opens and closes with grace. He says in th- verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Now, when he wrote Corinth, or when he wrote the churches of Galatia, you didn't get that kind of thanksgiving. Paul wasn't all that thankful for the churches of Galatia, because they had already departed from the gospel that he had preached to them. But the church at Philippi, he was always thankful every time he thought about this church. Verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. So he was thankful in every time he remembered them. And every prayer that he made for them all, he made a request with joy. And he's going to tell us about that request after he explains why he loved them so much and what he was thankful for. What was he thankful for? Verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. From the very first day in Philippi, when he met Lydia, when he met the jailer's family, until that very moment where he's writing from Rome. He's in Rome right now. How do we know that? We know that because of verse 13 that says, So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace. He's in bonds. And he says, I'm thankful for you from the first day until now. You have been a joy to me. From the very beginning. And it extended all the way through because he's going to teach us in chapter 4, when we get to it in four weeks, that this Macedonian church was the only church in the New Testament that always thought about giving to help Paul. They're the only ones. Even when he was in other places, they would send money to Paul, even though where he was should have been taking care of him, they would send a gift. And here they sent a gift. Chapter 4 is about the fact 
that he had got a sweet-smelling sacrifice from them while he was in prison in Rome because the Philippians always were fellows in a ship with Paul. Fellowship. Close companionship. Agreement in purpose and association. And this church was always with Paul in everything he did. And they showed it by supporting him with money and by sending ministers to comfort and encourage him about how their church was doing. Verse 6, here, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The apostle was so confident of this church, he knew that the work of conversion and the thoroughness of their lives that he had witnessed in the city of Philippi meant that they were God's children and that God would finish the work that he had started in them. Let me take just a minute with this verse. There are fatalists that want to take Philippians 1.6 and mean that God is going to convert every one of us perfectly before we die. But the verse doesn't teach that at all. And the rest of the epistle would have no meaning if it meant that. Because if God's going to perform everything for us, then we don't need to do anything, and we end up with a rather, rather fatalistic view of conversion. Because this verse isn't just talking about conversion. It's talking about God's operations of grace that get a man prepared in the day of judgment to stand whole and complete before the Lord Jesus Christ. God started to work in them with election, justification, and regeneration. He opened their hearts to the gospel so that they submitted themselves to it, and he would continue that work. He would perform the work that God is responsible for in all of our lives. That would eventually be glorification in heaven. Very simple, glorification in heaven. There's more to it than that, though. Paul knew that Jesus Christ was committed to these people, that they were truly God's elect, and that he would be providing the supplies of his spirit and of his power if they would use that and not waste the grace of God that was being spent on them. Verse 6, being confident. Paul was sure about this church. He wasn't so sure about some others. But he's confident of this church, of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. There is a difference of what God does in us and what God does by us. Or what we do. God was going to do his work in them. But do you know what the second chapter is going to teach us? It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But what does it say about that? It is God that works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. But we are to work out that salvation with fear and trembling. Amen. There would be no fear and trembling if, Colossians, if, if Philippians 1.6 took care of it all because God's going to do it all. God isn't going to do it all. God is going to work in you too willing to do of his good pleasure. But will you do and will you will of his good pleasure? Paul said, I keep under my body. Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul told Timothy, take heed to thyself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. There's no guarantee of God converting everyone equally to some level of of perfection or progressive sanctification until we're all holy and perfect. God doesn't guarantee to do that. 
What he does do is supply what is necessary for us to do that. He gives us the grace, but we can waste the grace. We can squander it. But there's one grace you can't squander, and that's the grace of glorification. That in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, all those Philippians would stand there complete and fully clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, because God would perform that. Because whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. And whom he predestinated, he called, he justified, and he glorified, but it never said he converted. That's the work of the ministry, and that's the work of your obedience when you hear the word of God. Why would Jesus say, take heed therefore how ye hear, if we are going to believe even to the smallest degree that it doesn't matter how you hear because God's going to perfect you anyway? We have to see what God is responsible for, what God has promised to do, and what God does do, and then what we are supposed to do. Amen. And what we are supposed to do is to use the grace of God and not receive it in vain. Verse 7, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Paul could say in verse 6 of how confident he was about this church because they were so dear to his heart, because they were a great church. He had seen in their lives and the obedience of this church, they were truly God's elect. And so he could say, it is appropriate for me, I'm translating the word meet for you, to thank this of you all. It was a great church in Philippi, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. You are all participating with me in my bonds, my suffering, my adversaries, and the grace that God has put upon me as the apostle of the Gentiles, you're always participating right with me in the work God's called me to do. I know you're his people. I have confidence of this church. I know that God is going to continue to do what he has started to do in you, and, and that you'll all stand one day before the Lord Jesus Christ. He's opening up his epistle. He's telling them wonderful things. He's praising this church. Because they were a great church. In verse 8, he calls God to record on what he has just said about them. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Bowels are tender feelings, sympathetic understanding, deep affection. Paul had that for these saints because of Jesus Christ and what he had done for Paul. True love for another person depends on the grace of God. The world cannot love like a child of God can love. It is different. They know how to lust, and so do we. But we know how to love, and they do not. Especially when it's in the bowels of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Paul's love as a Jew for these Greeks in Philippi was because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's bowels that Jesus Christ creates in all of his elect for one another. And it's where to put that on. He gives it to us. He gives it to us by the Holy Spirit that we have from God so that we have the fruit of the Spirit that is love. He would write the Thessalonians and say in one verse, I don't need to teach you about love. So we better rightly divide the word of truth. I don't need to teach you about love because God's already taught you. But he goes right on in 1 Thessalonians to say, but I exhort you to increase therein more and more. God puts, us in it, puts it in us, but we're to use it. And we're to develop it and provoke each other to love and to good works. Mm-hmm. Paul saw that in this church. They loved each other. They loved him. 
And so he, he had them in his bowels of Jesus Christ, and he told them that, and he calls God for a record on his soul that what he's telling them is very true. He truly loved the church at Philippi. And so we come to verses 9 through 11, my favorite verses of chapter 1. I love verses 9 through 11. This is my prayer for this church. It's a prayer for me, and I hope you'll pray it for me. Verses 9 through 11 are how Paul prayed for a church that he loved, and let us pray this way about ourselves. Listen to this sentence. And yes, it's one of Paul's masterpieces by the Holy Spirit. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. That is a sentence, and that is a prayer. And it shows the carnality of our hearts and our minds when we don't pray this way. This is the way we ought to pray. This is a spirit-filled man praying for good Christian brethren. There's nothing in here about their jobs, their health, their families, their education, their houses, their cars, nothing. It is a very spiritual objective for all of us. This is a wonderful verse. I want your love to abound more and more. You are a very loving church. I have you in my bowels, but I want you to love each other even more. But I want that love not to be mushy sentimentality. I want it to be based in knowledge and judgment. And this judgment isn't punishing each other. Judgment is knowing what is right and what is wrong, as he's going to explain in the 10th verse. I want it based in knowledge. I want you knowing Christ. I want you knowing God. I want you knowing how to treat each other by the word of God. I want your love to be based in knowledge and judgment. Hugging is not proof of real love. Kissing is not proof of real love. Potlucks, anniversary cards, birthday cards, shedding tears over someone is not proof of real love. Real love is wanting to help someone else in knowledge and judgment to approve things that are excellent, that they can be sincere and without offense until the day of Jesus Christ. That is the highest goal we can have for each other. I want you to think about me that way. I do care about you that way. Right here, this sentence, that we can be sincere, not hypocrites, without offense, avoiding sins and confessing them when they do occur, that we can stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his prayer for that church. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Filled. Fruits of righteousness. Which are by Jesus Christ. What's the source of any ability to have any fruit? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the vine and we are the branches. And without him we can do nothing of a spiritual sort like this. But with him we can do all things. We can be happy no matter what state or condition we're in. We can be content when we're poor. We can be full when we're hungry. We can be abased when we're honored, as he's going to teach us in chapter 4, all by the Lord Jesus Christ living through us. 
This was his prayer for the church. This is my prayer for all of you. Let's ask the Lord right now, right now, for this sentence in our lives. Holy Father in heaven, for your praise and your glory, as these verses teach us, we pray that you will grant us to be filled with all the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ. We know that he is the source of all righteousness and sincerity and godliness that will ever flow out of us must flow through us from him. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will teach us true knowledge and true judgment that we might approve those things that are excellent in our daily lives, in our relationships with one another, in serving thee, in living a life of godliness in a sinful world. Teach us these things and teach them at the heart level that we will be sincere and without offense until we stand before Thee. Heavenly Father, bless us to love one another and to abound in it more and more, but to have that love not based in foolish human feelings, but to have it based in true knowledge and judgment that we might together help one another and provoke one another to love and to good works that we might stand before thee one day soon, unashamed and confident, because we have lived our lives here in a way that was without offense in Jesus Christ. Lord, this is our prayer. We see this sentence, and we know that it is inspired by the living God, as how the great apostle of the Gentiles would pray for a great church. And Lord, whether we be a church like Philippi or not, we pray that this might be true in our lives. Have mercy upon us. We ask in Jesus' name and for your honor and your praise and your glory, O God our Father. Amen. Amen. And I send you a proverb every day, most every day. Do you know what that proverb is for? For you to abound in love and knowledge and judgment more and more. For you to be able to prove things that are excellent by knowing the word of God and the book that tells us. The book of Proverbs is the book to give us wisdom, knowledge, equity, and judgment. The book of Proverbs is given to us to learn those things. And if you will take a few minutes every day to learn the book of Proverbs with me, let us relate to each other by the rules of that book. Let us relate to this world by the rules of that book. Let us be wise and prudent in all of our dealings that we can approve things that are excellent that we can be sincere and without offense to men and to God before Jesus Christ comes for his praise and his glory. Verse 12. I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The Philippian church had heard that Paul had been taken to Rome, that he was imprisoned there in Rome, and he could very likely lose his life. They heard about his being shipwrecked in the Mediterranean Sea. They had heard of all the troubles, and they were worried that the great apostle might be taken off of what God had called him to do. They were worried that the kingdom of God might suffer because the apostle Paul was in jail. And so he says to them, I want you to understand, dear brothers, that the things that have happened to me have happened for the furtherance of the gospel. 
And to let them know just how much he meant that, he says in verse 13, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace, that the Apostle Paul would be imprisoned for preaching Jesus Christ was known by everyone in the palace that it was an unfair arrangement, that he was a good man, an innocent man, had done nothing worthy of bonds, but was simply there for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, how much was that true? How, it was this true. In Colossians chapter, I mean, in, in 422 of this book, he's going to say, as he closes out this epistle, all the saints salute you, meaning the church at Rome salutes you in Philippi. But chiefly, they that are of Caesar's household. Amen. Amen. Second Timothy 2.9. The Apostle Paul wrote Timothy and said, I am bound, but the word of God is not bound. And Colossians 4.22 tells us that there were converts in Caesar's household. Praise the great name of God. And do you know what one of the rumors are about some of those converts? Pudens and Claudia, a Roman senator named Pudens and Claudia, the daughter of the chief of Wales, the king of Wales. This is, this is history. Those two names are in the Bible. This is history. That they went from Rome to the British Isles and taught the gospel of the Apostle Paul in the British Isles while Paul was still alive. And started the Welsh churches. So that when the Catholic monk, Augustine, got there in 500 A.D., he wrote back to Rome and said, this place has already been Christianized and they don't like me. They will not celebrate Easter and they will not give Christianity to their children. You know what that means, don't you? They wouldn't baptize babies. And he met 1,000 ministers. 1,000 ministers. And he had them all annihilated. And they didn't think that Christianity had ever gone to the British Isles before. And you know the first Baptist churches in this country, some of them were called the Welsh Tract.